Good morning, Idaho. Hope you're having a wonderful morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on when you're listening to this. Welcome to the Local Yokel Idaho podcast, where we talk about what is going on in the wonderful state of Idaho. Welcome. I can guess that the title of the episode kind of caught you there, but don't worry. We will deliver on the clickbait there. I'm not lying. We'll be talking about how Californians are not to blame for Idaho's political problems, how Idaho is helping in the race to Mars, the new space race there, fun facts about a lesser known Idaho animal. Please join us for that and so much more in the quickies this week. Hey, glad to have you here today with us. Please join us for the morning banter where we chat with you guys a little bit before we get into it. But I understand if you're short on time and prefer to skip the banter, you can use the timestamp that is down in the description to jump straight over to the stories. First off, welcome. Thank you for everyone that is joining us for the morning banter. I know, you know, in the speed of life and things, sometimes you're like, I just need the information and I need to go. But I'm so glad you stayed and are hearing this because I know it's probably one of my favorite segments of the podcast because I, I would say I do have a distinct habit of liking to ramble. But with that said, for any first-time viewers, my name is Tyler. I'm the host of the podcast and the owner of the Local Yokel Idaho channel and kind of all the stuff we do. Joining me as my co-host is John. He is the editor of all the amazing content we make here at the podcast and the channel. I guess I am the editor of all of the content we make. That's either a really good thing or a really bad thing. I'm not quite sure yet. See, if it all turns out great, then it's a good thing. Then it's a really great thing. If <laughs> You're like, I don't have any plausible deniability. You're like, I need to event person. Bob, it's your fault. Seriously, I need to go hire someone else. <laughs> but how are you doing, John? I am doing all right now. The week has been rough, but I'm good now. I finally got a good night's sleep last night. Today's been a good day. Got a bunch of work done on various projects, and that's a good thing. So I'm doing pretty good now. Also, it snowed outside, and that was fun. The kids had a lot of fun with that, and I enjoyed watching it from my window where I was working. Yeah, it snowed. And for me, I'm one of those people, like, whenever it snows, my spirits instantly get lifted. It could be, I could be crushing with stress and a bunch of deadlines and everything. But it snowed. Come on, man. It, it's an amazing day. There's no way it, it couldn't be. But snow is awesome. Hopefully, your kids enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. They were up and they had their snow gear on. First thing, you know, as soon as they came upstairs and saw that it was snowing outside, they were all about it. And it was great. Yeah, they, they love it. I, I love it. I grew up in Michigan where it snowed, but it was terrible. But, you know, I, I love <laughs> I've I've loved the snow. I love snow sports. It's just it's good fun. And and if you have cool toys like snowblowers, it gives you a chance to pull those out and play with them, which sadly I don't have. But I have five small children who take care of that for me. They're more of the the, the comedy special snowblower, okay? You're watching a bunch of kids out there <laughs> trying to figure out how to get the driveway shoveled is more entertaining than having a snowblower. <laughs> That's true, although I will say the older ones have, have figured it out and actually do good work now, which is kind of nice. That is nice. It's nice that you're like, oh, cool, I'm going to go walk out, and the one spot that doesn't need to have any ice when you're getting into the car actually doesn't have any ice because the snow all got properly shoveled. <laughs> Yeah, no, they they have they've learned to do a good job. And then my son will even go around the neighborhood and he'll like start with the with the houses next to us and then he'll go out another time and do the houses next to them and he'll just kind of go and shovel snow because he likes doing it. You know, I funny story, when I was growing up there in Boise, um we lived really close to a park, kind of one of those neighborhood parks that's tucked away and I got done shoveling our driveway. And I was like, well, you know, as a homeschooler, I mean, I, I got the, like the snow day off. 
which you'd think, well, you know, you don't have to go to school, so you have school every day. But, you know, thankfully my mom was very gracious and we had a snow day. And so I did that. And then I sat there and I went around the neighborhood and I shoveled all the other driveways for all the different neighborhood friends and stuff and people that I knew. And so I helped shovel a bunch of those driveways and I was still like, well, I got more of the day. And if I go home and I go inside, I'm not going to be out in the snow and I want to be out in the snow. Well, why am I doing the snow? I'm like, well, snow shovel. So what I ended up doing is I went to the park and I, I didn't do a full, like, you know how a sidewalk is kind of like almost three shovelfuls, right? Or two, maybe if you've got a big shovel. I only did one, but I did shovel a path around the entire length of our neighborhood park. Wow. And I, I had way more fun than I should have doing it, but that, that definitely passed the day away. And it was one of those times where when you, you're younger, you think, oh, it's cold, cold, cold. I got to have all this clothing on to keep me warm. And that was kind of the first moment I realized, well, if you're being really active out in the snow, I don't need half this gear. So by the time I had gotten like halfway through the whole park, I, I pretty much all I had was like my snow bibs on at that point. And I had my jacket like cinched around my waist as I was shoveling snow. Yeah, I have... A similar story, but I was skiing, and I was skiing at uh, Taos, which is a New Mexico ski resort. Well, I was snowboarding, but anyway. And it was towards the end of the season, and it was getting a little bit warmer. And, and I got to the point where I was just getting too hot. And I ended up, for like the latter part of the day, I just had my snow pants on, and then I had a t-shirt, and that was it. And I was wearing my gloves, because, you know, you're snowboarding, you're going to get your hands in the snow, and if you don't have gloves on, it's cold. But yeah, t-shirt and snow pants, and it was awesome. You know, the viewers, I don't think I've spent, obviously, as much time as I have with you, but that is a very fitting <laughs> answer for what I would expect you to do. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> but one thought that did enter my head as we were talking about this, and I know you'll be able to probably answer this, is that for people who grow up in snowy conditions, there are different types of snow. There's like the soft snow, like the sand. You've got like sandy snow where it doesn't really squish or compact. The moisture level is low in it. And then you have like the high moisture type of snow where that stuff, you, know, you can make igloos almost out of it. What types did you experience kind of back there in Michigan? Mostly it was the, the heavier, wetter type. Because it's more humid there and it doesn't get as cold, it would be it would be that type. Now, when we were living in Wisconsin, though, we got a lot of the really light, dry snow. It gets so cold there that when it snows, you know, it warms up enough so that it can snow. It's it's super dry and super, you know, it's just powdery, like you said. And I will say, if you're looking to ski or snowboard, that's the best snow to be on because that's just fun. I could totally see where that would be really nice for snowboarding or skiing because you can kind of just glide across it and you're not like trying to stick. If you're able to find some fresh, fresh, dry powder, it's glorious. I have no doubt. Plus, probably crashing into it and then the whole poof is the thing that comes to my mind. Yeah, it's much nicer to crash into <laughs> fluffy, dry snow than it is wet, gross, watery snow. That's just no fun. Yes, yeah, so you're just like, wham! It's like doing a belly flop at the pool. Yeah, no fun. No fun at all. <laughs> right. But with that said, last week, for those that either didn't hear or did, we put a poll out for you guys looking at kind of the future formats that we're thinking about with the podcast. One of them was 
was to sit there and take the standard format we have with like a banter and then the main episodes and then like shorter stories or quickies and then shrink that down and then dice that up across Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The other option, the second one that we had there was one where we were going to say, hey, we're going to still have the main show on like Sunday. It'll just be main stories though with a banter and then kind of a closing out. That way it'll be shorter. That way it'll be more concise for you guys. And then like the quickies, there's the shorter stories we do would come out during the week on like a Wednesday or something. And then anything else like interviews and special segments and different stuff that we're planning and working on, those would also come out during the week. It seems in the polls that we're leaning towards doing the latter of kind of having the main episode on a Sunday. I definitely agree that I'm kind of leaning there too as I've thought about it and shoot over it throughout the weeks and then kind of interacting and talking to people. But if that's not what you want or didn't know that we were running this poll, please do go out. I think most of them end on like Monday or Tuesday. So assuming the podcast comes out on schedule on Sunday. So you guys should have an opportunity. If you disagree with that, please go and vote. Main way that we're trying to figure that out. And I think, I think that closes out for the banter. Unless, John, you want to share some wonderful tips about migraines. Don't get them. That's the biggest tip I've got. Let's move into the news here and uh, on from things that cause headaches. Starting off our first news story, and sadly, I kind of lied. It starts off with politics, so there might be a little bit of headaches. My bad. Ada County GOP under audit. This comes by the Boise Dad by Margaret Carmel. The Ada County GOP is undergoing a financial audit initiated by the Idaho Republican Party under the leadership of Chairwoman Dorothy Moon. This development follows a complaint from 17 party members against the leadership of former Chairman Victor Miller and the subsequent resignation of Miller and five other leaders. Moon has been critical of Miller, alleging that the local party hadn't paid its dues to the state party to cover investments in Ada County's races. This conflict has led to a lawsuit from the Bingham County Republican Central Committee against the state party, really tensions between more conservative Republicans like Moon and their more moderate counterparts. The critics of Moon, including Miller, argue that the infighting distracts from the larger mission of keeping the Republican Party in power. However, Moon denies these allegations, stating that the accusations are merely a projection from an old guard upset about losing their power. The audit was sparked by concerns raised in early 2023 about the Ada County GOP's financial accounting. Moon accused the local party of underpaying the state's party nearly $34,000. And in April, 17 members of the Ada County GOP wrote a complaint to Moon alleging issues with the finances of the local party, prompting a evaluation of the Ada County GOP's budget. This ongoing audit and tensions with within the Idaho GOP could have significant implications for the state's politics, potentially affecting the party's unity and ability to maintain its power. Which, before we started recording, John, you mentioned that you actually were at this meeting where they voted on a bill or whatever as a resolution, I'm not sure what term to exactly put to it there, where Ada County wasn't going to actually be paying its dues to the main state party. I was. It, it was interesting. It's the one Ada County Republican Party meeting I went to. I was dragged there by one of the elders at our church, actually. It was it was a big deal. There was there was a whole lot of conversation that happened. It was hilarious. And and the the guy that brought me, he was he's a stand in or an, an alternate for whoever the person in his district is. And so he was telling us all about it and telling us what was going on. And and he was just laughing his butt off at the ridiculousness of this. And the arguments seemed to be now, and this is going back 
to April, so a bit of time. Yeah, my memory might be a bit hazy, but from what I remember, the, the two sides, the one side that didn't want to give their dues to Idaho GOP, they were saying that the that the state party takes the money from Ada County and disperses it throughout the state. And those that wanted to continue giving said, no, no, the state actually gives more money to GOP or more money to Ada County than than makes sense given population percentages and all that stuff. And it so, you know, it just made me laugh because both sides were saying completely opposite things and then everybody voted and it got out of hand and it was hilarious. So I enjoyed that very much. Yeah, to be honest, I've been to, I think, one of the Ada County ones. I regularly attend the Canyon County, which is where I reside, being involved in that. that That's pretty par for the course with some of the meetings, especially if there's a contentious issue. There'll be this person trying to make sure this is being accountable, and then the votes will be close and stuff, and I, I would expect nothing less with it. But, yeah, that the argument that the... You know, here again, John trying to remember over time might not be one to one if someone's listening out there that's, you know, from the Ada County committee and from different districts that might object. We're not saying it's gospel that what happens is that Ada County, obviously, you know, is a very important county in the rest of the state. So a lot of political effect is there. And so obviously a lot of money that's generated around the state is going to be diverted towards places where the Idaho GOP is fighting battles, right? If you're fighting a war, you're going to fund the front lines. And so a lot of the money that's generated in the state, be it especially, I know even over in Canyon County, which obviously is very populated, gets spent a lot of it to help Ada County to try to go out and let people know, get people informed, support different people running for offices so that Ada County specifically doesn't flip, that it has more of a Republican majority, which is generally more helpful for the party. So Ada County Central Committee, by try saying that, like, no, we're not going to we're not going to pay the dues to the state party. Well, that money almost boom is going to almost 100 percent boomerang back to you. The main reason you're paying it is ba- it, for lack of a better word, is just homage of that. OK, yeah, we're part of the Idaho GOP. And part of that is that we all work together. We're not above each other. We're all working together for conservative values within the state. And so part of that is that there needs to be a war chest that can be distributed between other areas of issue where those funding is needed. Well, in this case, most of that money is just going to come right back to Ada County. So they've kind of shot themselves in the foot for something they would have already gotten. Seems to be that way. And it makes me laugh at the pettiness of people who have and want power or authority or control because people who drive for those things start ignoring things that actually matter so it's it's a it, it it's a thing that made me laugh and now seeing it again makes me laugh again because now there's a lawsuit or I guess it's just an audit but an audit is going to cost even more money just makes me laugh yeah I, I think also kind of like zooming out to kind of a hundred foot look at the situation I think it's kind of a growing trend where you have the more traditional, more maybe libertarian, more centrist type of Republicans within the Idaho party. Many of them are born and raised Idahoans that kind of sit on that middle line of wanting to play nice and get along in that and everything. And then you have the other half, which are people that are that more conservative, more, how would I put it, like a populist, conservative, Christian type of conservatism and Republican type of ideology is kind of growing. And I think you're kind of seeing those two butting head because Dorothy Moon definitely, I would say, is 
on that second class, a little bit more kind of a Trumpish populist, more of that modern strain of conservatism and Republican. And that's kind of clashing with some of that old guards that obviously they're in Boise, you know, that have been around for a bit. And I think that's why you're seeing a little bit of this rubbing and then the results with this audit and other things happening around the state. But it'll be interesting to see thus far. I think I think Dorothy Moon's done a good job handling it all and choosing the right battles to fight and letting other ones go. But it will be interesting to see as time progresses. Now, moving on to a story that's a little less political, but definitely just as fast and crazy. Idaho named the West Fastest Land Animal. This comes by the Boise Dev by Ann Daly. So, have you ever wondered what the fastest animal is in the world? Well, of course, we all have. The cheetah. But have you ever wondered what the fastest animal is in little old Idaho? Probably not, but I bet you can't guess what it is. If you want to, you can pause the episode or the podcast here and see if you can guess correctly before we start. So, I'll give you a little bit of a pause there. Now, the answer is the pronghorns. They are often mistaken for antelopes, a common sight in Idaho's vast open countryside. These animals are considered the fastest land mammals, not only in Idaho, but the Western Hemisphere, capable of reaching speeds up to 60 miles per hour and sustaining speeds of 30 to 45 miles per hour over long distances, according to the Idaho Fish and Game. While a cheetah may outpace a pronghorn in a short-distance race, the pronghorn would win in a long-distance race. Their primary predators are bobcats and coyotes, which mainly target young pronghorns. When pronghorns sense danger, they alert others by sticking up the white hairs on their rumps, a signal that can be seen from miles on a bright day. For those of us who may have already thought about it, hunting pronghorns in Idaho can be a bit challenging due to their exceptional hearing, sense of smell, and eyesight. Their large eyes, comparable in size to a horse's, allow them to spot moving objects from four miles away. However, they may ignore a person standing still just 50 feet away as they need to see movement to detect it. Despite being commonly referred to as pronghorn antelope, pronghorns are not related to antelope. They belong to the antelope caperty family and are the only members with no close relatives. Pronghorns are known to be playful with humans, often racing vehicles driving through their habitat, which I know it's kind of a small little detail, but these little things are just fun and I love to learn about them and they bring a deeper bit of knowledge about Idaho, especially, I mean, I know this is something that's in the Western Hemisphere, kind of North America type of thing, but still, we have these I've seen them many a time in Idaho. Granted, I haven't experienced the uh, latter kind of fun thing of them racing vehicles per se, but I I, I didn't know about this. All. I was kind of kicking myself because usually I like to think of these weird things and I'll go look them up and know kind of these facts, but I did not know this one at all. I can't say that I did either, although the the point about them being able to win a race against a cheetah, that makes sense. Most most animals that can run distance can beat a cheetah because cheetahs, well, they, they, they suck at it. They got burst speed, baby. They, yeah, they're they're good sprinters, but that's about it. But yeah, no, it's interesting. I didn't know that that pronghorns were that fast. It's insane. Yeah, sixty miles an hour. Like I can't I can't remember the exact statistic, but I want to say like about fifty percent, maybe a little less of all roads in Idaho are like sixty miles an hour. Yeah, no, it's it's a uh, that's pretty cool. It is pretty darn cool. Have you actually ever seen one, John? So yeah, we were. I was out going down towards Twin Falls. And I was with my father-in-law and my son, and we were looking for 
fishing or we were just driving around. I don't really remember, but but yeah, we were driving around out in the country and yeah, we saw some some pronghorns out there and it was it was pretty cool. They didn't they weren't doing any moving. They were just standing there eating. It was so pretty cool. Yeah, you, you don't often see them in the more mountainous areas of the state. You usually find them in the plains area. I know I've seen some of the mountain goats, which those are those are really, really pretty to see. I remember we were one time going over there by what was it? Brownlee, Brownlee Reservoir, and we were going off fishing, me and my grandpa, and we came around a turn, and you, you have those kind of steep slopes as the road's kind of been carved out of the mountain, and then just right there on the slope, like almost 90 degree, was a mountain goat just looking at us like, hi. Nice. <laughs> I was like, well, hello to you too. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take my fish, all right? That's all I ask. Just stay up there, and I'll go down and fish in the canyon, okay? <laughs> That's funny. But yes, a fun trivia fact for any of the kids listening that you could share with your friends or something that all you adults out there, especially the homeschooling families, will probably love to learn and add to the general wealth of knowledge that we all love to have. Well, as a transplant to Idaho myself, this next story is one that piques my interest. This is Idaho's Newcomers, a Republican Majority. This comes from KTVB7 by Joe Paris. So diving into a topic that's been a hot conversation among Idahoans for years, the influx of -of out-of-state voters moving to Idaho, particularly from states like California, and the effect they're having in the state of Idaho. Newly released voter registration data from the Idaho Secretary of State's office, however, paints a different picture than what many Idahoans have been saying for years. Of the nearly 119,000 current Idaho voters who moved from another state, a strong majority registered as Republicans after settling in Idaho. California, often seen as a liberal stronghold, has sent the most people to Idaho over the years, with almost 40,000 current voters coming from the Golden State. Surprisingly, though, 75% of this group registered as Republican voters once they established residency in Idaho. This trend holds true across the board with 48 out of 49 states. Vermont being the exception, contributing a majority block of Republican voters to Idaho. Overall, 65% of new Idaho voters from other states registered with the GOP. Dr. Jeff Lyons, lead of the Boise State Political Science Program, confirms that this data aligns with their survey data. However, it's important to note that the data comes with some caveats. The voter registration counts only track adults who actively registered after moving to Idaho and don't account for people who chose not to disclose their previous out-of-state address. Which, before we hit the record button here, me and John were kind of teasing that we definitely had some interesting thoughts on this, and I most certainly do because as a Born and raised Idaho, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard those Californians, they're the ones to blame for changing things or something thereof. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting, and it's a conversation I've had with several people. And, and one of the thoughts is more of a shift in values. So at some point, we talked about the, the, the Overton window, when it shifts. So the Overton window being the, I guess, the, the realm of things that are seen as normal, right? From from far left to far right, you go too far outside and, and you're crazy either way. So the Overton window kind of shifts left and right as, as, the, as the group of people changes. Well, so in California, seemingly, and this is just, this is just me thinking out loud, but in, in California, it seems that the Overton window is further to the left, which means that people that are to the left in California are further to the left than people that are to the left here in Idaho, at least generally speaking. But it also means that people that are 
on the right or are typically aligned with the GOP tend to be further left than those who are in Idaho. And so people moving here from very liberal states, they might be registering as Republicans, but their values might still be reflecting kind of what they're moving away from. And that's not true for all cases, because I know several people from California who don't think that way. But I do know that that the, you know, that the majority of Californians that or at least the Overton window in California has shifted left. It's the same in Colorado. It's the same in New Mexico. It's the same in Virginia. It's, it's the same in so many places where, yeah, we might be getting GOP voters. Republican or GOP doesn't necessarily mean traditional conservative. And, and so that's where I find these, these statistics interesting, but also they're only painting a part of the picture. Right, right. Which, you know, an interesting thing I would throw your wage on and interesting to get your kind of perspective after you kind of have that one, which is, you know, and I think most people who listen to the show know, I I regularly try to make sure to go to a lot of the different political events that are going on in the Treasure Valley. When you go and you go to different events or just if you watch the legislature, if you look at the people who are consistently regularly passing really conservative laws. So if we're talking about that, we're talking about like pro-life, anti-LGBTQ curriculum in schools and in the medical field, right? You're looking towards funding towards maybe more Christian or Christian Judeo type of policies with that kind of background in mind being passed, right? That That's kind of that more, what would I call it? That more traditional conservative that you've seen throughout the rest of American history. A lot of those people are either recent transplants or people that came from out of state at some point or at least left and then came back. And when you go to a lot of different meetings and stuff, most of the people that are pushing for those really conservative values generally not all the time, are all out-of-staters, especially Californians that have come with a fire and passion to be like, I, I knew what I came from, and I don't want that again, and so I'm getting involved now so that I can get ahead of the ball. I'm not saying that's the case for all of them, but then on the flip side, if you're talking about those that are kind of getting in the way of certain policies, the senators that are voting against abortion banning laws, the senators that are voting against bills that would get rid of, you know, transgender stuff in public or yada yada, a lot of those are locals that were born and raised here a lot of the time. Not all the time. I'm not saying universally, but generally in my experience and observation, that's what occurs. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes sense to me. I, I will say it's interesting looking through the the data. So so in the article and then in the we'll have it posted in the document that goes along with the podcast. With the show notes. Yeah, in the show notes. Thank you. There are there are two links. One to the story, the story from KTVB seven. The other one is to an Idaho.gov site where it actually shows a map of the states. And it's interesting to see where people are moving from and and what people are moving from where are registering as what. Yeah, this is the kind of the Idaho Secretary of States. They made a kind of visual chart of all this for the report that came out here recently. And that's what prompted the article and everything, which you can go and you can hover over each state and then it'll give you, you know, the percentage of Republican, Democrat, unaffiliated and other that came from that state to Idaho, including the number. And then if you want to click on that state. 
and then you can even get a map by like county. So in this way, you can actually even see, you know, which counties, what areas of California, the most amount of people are coming from on the on those maps. Yeah. And so it's interesting kind of looking through it at various places I've lived, who's coming from where and how are they registering? Although, all right, now I have I have some I am upset now with the Secretary of State's website. Oh, no. Because I moved from Winchester, Virginia, and I'm almost positive that I'm a registered Republican voter here in the state. But their data only has two Democrats and four unaffiliated. So I don't know which one of those I am and which one's my wife, but uh, my wife is one of the unaffiliated, and I guess I didn't move here. So... I wonder when the calming data for this came out or when it was added. I don't know. Because, you know, the speed at which government moves. Right. But yeah, that, that makes me laugh because I, I apparently don't live here. Also, it's funny if you go over here. I'm, I'm, we're just messing with it live here for you guys. So fully genuine reaction. If you go over to Portland, Oregon, it's 46% from Portland, Oregon. We're Republican. So that's 400 people from Portland to Idaho with 263 being Democrat, 253 being unaffiliated and 1% other. And Well, it would be interesting to be able if if as you zoomed out, if they actually lumped places together. Because it would be interesting just to see the overall numbers of the Portland metropolitan area, you know, taking into account Portland and Beaverton and and all of those other places. I don't know them, so I'm not going to name them all because that would be dumb of me. But, you know, it, it would be it would be interesting. So the the I think the I think the bigger story here is less about Idaho and more about these places. Because the story that I see that's being told here is that Republicans in droves are leaving these places. So, like, that's that's the big story that I'm seeing. Well, with Republicans voting with their feet, that in the past it was like, well, you know, I don't like that California is liberal and all the laws and stuff, but my family's here and we've been here for three or four generations or whatever. And we really, you know, the history, which there's a certain amount of importance to that. And I don't deny that that shouldn't be taken lightly. I think some people don't think that is, but I, I really do. But then they're finally saying, no, enough is enough. No, even as much as, you know, maybe we've been in California, maybe we've been in Oregon or maybe we've been in Washington, you know, the, the close states to speak of, right? But no, it's too far now. We're going to vote with our where we live. We're moving to the nearest really conservative bastion. Well, then Idaho's great. You can go to Idaho. If you've got family still there in California, you can visit. It's not a horrible drive. It's the perfect kind of bastion for Republicans that want to still stay out west, but move to a state that more better aligns with their ideas. Yeah. I can't tell you how many how many people I've talked to who have moved from California and their first, you know, you ask them where they're from, they're like, well, I'm from California, <laughs> but I'm not one of those. I've never met a met someone from California who's like, yeah, I'm from California and I'm one of those. That like proudly, like, here's my badge. It says California right there on big letters. Okay. Don't you forget. <laughs> but anyway, I, the, the bigger story I think is the national story about who's moving from where and who's, like you said, voting with their feet. We're seeing, or we're seeing Republicans or conservatives in this, at this point, we're, we're doing a lot of voting with our feet and our dollars. And it's, it's starting to have an effect on any number of things from Budweiser to Twitter to Disney. And it's, it's fun to see, it's fun to see change. We'll, we'll see what happens, but, but it's, it's interesting to see. Right. For someone, you know, there, there are always people, I feel like in certain decades and ages that sit there and say, you know, oh, if I can only go back to that decade or that, you know, age or whatever, and that was exciting. There were things happening. I, I think a lot of people are going to look back a bit 
at these years, especially after COVID, and I would say just about Trump time, as much as some people might not want to call it that, but, you know, 2016, and be like, yeah, a lot happened. I, I lived through a lot of history right there, because there, there are a lot of things, there's a lot of shaking up, changing of norms that are occurring, both in Idaho and the U.S. broadly. But speaking of big things and move, not talking about politics at all, we'll move on to our next story here, which is Idaho's crucial role in the race to Mars. This comes from the East Idaho News by Michael Wilner. For any of you who have listened to the podcast for any length of time, you know I love space stuff and nuclear. Well, we have a story here that covers both of those, so it's going to be a fun one. But starting off with some context, in the last five years, China's rapid progress in space exploration has made the U.S. intelligence community a little concerned. With a rover on the moon's far side, a space station orbiting the Earth, China's advancements have ignited a new space race between Washington and Beijing. This time, the ultimate goal is to send a a crude mission to Mars, with each nation vying to be the first to land humans on another planet, specifically Mars. The success of America's mission may hinge on a team of scientists based out of Idaho Falls. Engineers at the Energy Department of Idaho's National Laboratory, or INEL, are leading a nationwide team to enhance the capabilities of nuclear thermal propulsion, technology that NASA hopes will cut the travel time to Mars by half. This ambitious project could transform the future of human space travel. NASA aims to reach Mars by 2040 and is working on an entirely new technology for the mission. With conventional technology, launch opportunities to Mars come along just once every 26 months. So missing a launch window could mean a delay of several years. And if something goes wrong mid-flight, the crew will have to be on its own in deep space. Idaho National Laboratory is working to enhance control over the velocity of the engine, increasing its efficiency and control its heat generation, cutting their travel time could reduce many of the logistical hurdles and risks currently burdening the mission, which the article in question here did not go very deep into it, so I will give a little bit of it, which is there was a piece of technology during the Cold War era with rockets that we developed, which basically, for lack of a better word, is nuclear-powered rockets. Totally fine for us to use. We're not irradiating the atmosphere when we use those. What usually happens is you have a, the bottom part of the rocket that gets the whole thing into space, so the first stage, because usually most rockets have a first and a second stage. I think the Apollo had a three-stager, but the first stage, that gets you end up into kind of low-Earth orbit. Second stage kind of uses to maneuver you and that third stage is usually what's used to kind of punch you out into space especially if you're going after the moon or mars but with nuclear type of rockets what you do is you do with the first stage you have a standard type of propellant type of rocket be it solid or liquid fuel that gets you up in space and then when you're up in space then you use the nuclear rocket so for those of you that know about space space is already very radioactive like a lot radioactive so us burning nuclear rockets out in space kind of spewing nuclear into space really doesn't change it at all in the drop it's kind of just a drop in the can there but the cool thing with it is that the amount of energy we get from it from the thrust weight ratio is immense and can be way more efficient than propellant rockets and you get a lot more bang for your buck there i know they were testing it and i don't remember we i might have to look it up as we're recording here i don't think nasa actually ever launched launched a nuclear rocket into space not talking about nuclear missiles but i do know it is a very promising technology up there with like the aerospike and other stuff which i'm really glad they're kind of taking this and reevaluating it for kind of these future plans as we reach out into the stars more yeah it's that's interesting i know that there are several people who are interested in going to mars and it's an interesting exciting thing i'm not 
100% sure what the ultimate implications are. But having said that, there are so many there are so many things that we use on a daily basis right now that came out of the space program that are just kind of byproducts of it that I am pretty much all for letting letting NASA and smart people try to continue doing crazy things because it just ends up helping everybody because we get cool things out of it. Right. Which two things. One, cool things invented. I will add one that I learned recently that I didn't know about. So, you know, when you're like driving on the freeway and especially when you go into like the different turns, I think Karcher has one and Eagle has one where you have those big, like they're on ramps, I think. Well, no, the Karcher one's an off ramp. The Eagle one is an on ramp, but they're those big round loops, right? Well, when you're driving them, do you ever notice how they're kind of like grooved, especially also on the freeway that you have grooves there? That was a byproduct where NASA with the space shuttle program, they had a problem where the space shuttle was coming to land on the runway and they weren't able to keep it going straight. Well, they added grooves in the runway and then it was able to actually stay straight when it landed. And so then that translated into the private sector for roads and to help cars not skid off <laughs> sharp embankments or different road surfaces. Well, there you go. That seems that that's interesting. I didn't know that that was a byproduct of of space travel. I didn't either. I found it out about like a, a week or two ago, but I was like, oh, that's cool on top of memory foam because everyone, you know, I think most people know that memory foam was developed by the space program, but there's there's so many little things. But also with that said, the second point I wanted to make, which kind of to have a little bit of discussion there with you, John, which is why go to Mars? Well, at the time, why was it even a good idea for Columbus to go to try to discover this new world? It took money. It took time. You get there. Yeah, it's more land or whatever else, but it's super expensive to get there. It's super dangerous to get there, right? All these negative factors, but look at the payoff that it gave us. Yeah, but as a, as a counter to that, at least the popular narrative, and I don't know how historically accurate this is because history isn't necessarily as clear as I'd like it to be, but I know the popular narrative wasn't that Columbus was trying to discover a new land, but it was that he was trying to discover a new route to China or actually India, not China, to, to try and make it make the 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 trade with India be more affordable. And he just kind of happened upon the Americas and then everybody started coming here. So Columbus might be the bad, might not be the greatest example, but a lot of the explorers that came after him might be even better examples. But going back to Mars, though, I don't see the end result. I don't see what the benefit will be. Not that I don't see that there will be one, because Columbus couldn't have seen what the benefit of discovering the Americas would have been. And so, you know, the, the future is always cloudy for us now. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but prophecy doesn't really work very well. So I don't know. I, I will I will be interested to see what happens in the next, I don't know, 300 years. Part of those will be here. The other part will be up in heaven looking down, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, and we'll see what happens unless Futurama talking heads become a thing. And then we just get to be in a talking head museum. Oh, no, don't get on that. <laughs> oh, what the reference. <laughs> but I think one thing, maybe, maybe is before we close this segment, and I know you're not against or whatever else, but can we both agree that going to the moon and having a permanent presence there is a beneficial and good thing for humanity, even that we can actually even see the benefits of? What do you mean by permanent presence? Permanent presence is that just like, for instance, we've had a permanent presence in low Earth orbit with humans on the International Space Station with the moon, meaning you have people regularly there that it's not that, oh, there's a couple robots roaming around. No, there's actual humans there doing things. Right. So I know on the ISS, we've done a lot of science 
science. I'll just leave, I'll, I'll end the statement at that. We've done a lot of science and discoveries <laughs> have been made and, and cool things have happened. And so we've been able to advance in science because of it. I know that the moon has a lot of natural resources that could be very beneficial. I, I guess outside of that, so so now you get into the colonization conversation and colonization was great for certain groups of people. It was great for the Puritans. It was great for for the the French who went to Canada and French who went to Louisiana. So colonization can be great for a lot of people because it gets them away from the the tyrannical governments that are currently squeezing them. And that's a thing that we could potentially be seeing right now. There's a third thing I'm seeing with the moon. I don't know if you see it. I not off the top of my head. Well, if we ever want to do more things in space, the moon is almost like God's like, hey, I'm going to put this like really big, small planet that orbits you. And it's going to be this like amazing thing that has no almost no atmosphere and very low gravity. So it can be like the perfect refueling and launch pad into the rest of the galaxy. Okay, now that that can make sense if we're using the moon more as a, I don't know, a space station. It's already there. We don't have to build it. We don't have to launch a ton of stuff into space. It's there. Also, cool finding. I don't know if you knew about it, but the, the dust on the moon, it has a higher amount of a certain type of hydrogen that can be used for rocket fuel. So going back to natural resources, I'm like I said, I'm totally down. Ooh, ooh, I have another good reason that more space travel would be a good thing. And I said this on a previous episode, but I'll say it again. Uh, it means that we could finally look out the window and point to what Earth looks like and say, see, that's the shape that Earth is. And then we can stop having discussions about, <laughs> is it flat? Is it a cone? Is it a donut? I don't know. We would all know at that point and be able to go, yeah, see, that's the shape. And then and then that would be the end of that discussion. But you'd have those people that would be like, nope, I'm not getting on that. You know, if I go up there, all the people that go up there, they get brainwashed and and then they come back down, and I, I, I have the true reality, so I'm going to stay on the ground. Okay, so maybe it wouldn't be the end of the discussion because we do still have we do still have Windex guy who's spraying Windex at contrails to make them go away. So you know the crazy people will still be out mm -hmm, there, but mm -hmm. at the very least, skeptics who are at least uh, who have their head screwed on at least mostly correct, the majority of that argument can just go away. Having said that, I really enjoy flat Earth arguments. They're a lot of fun. Oh, they they. They are. They are. In any case, that wraps us up for the main stories, and we'll wrap up the whole episode with some quickies here. Now, moving into the quickies here, these are stories that didn't make the cut to be a main story, but were stories all the same that I think you guys should be aware of. Our first one here is local Idahoan arrested for participating in January 6th. This comes by KTVB7 by Idaho Press staff. In a recent development from Nampa, a local man has been detained by the FBI for his involvement in the U.S. Capitol breach that took place on January 6, 2021. Theo Hansen, 54, faces both felony and misdemeanor charges for his actions on January 6. Hansen's charges include felony offense of obstruction of official proceedings and civil disorder, as well as a misdemeanor offense of knowingly entering or remaining in any restricted building or grounds, disorderly conduct in a restricted area, and violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. Court documents reveal that Hansen traveled from his then home in San Diego to Washington, D.C., and was present inside the Capitol building and on the Capitol grounds on the day of the breach. He was identified on CCTV footage entering the Capitol and obscuring security doors. Hansen's arrest and subsequent court proceedings are an example of how the court system and the left are treating the 
those who were there on January 6th. But speaking of things going on in the Treasure Valley, one here that's a little bit more sweet. Boise's Great Harvest Bread Co. seeks new ownership. This comes by the Boise Dad by Gretchen Parsons. Great Harvest Bread Co. has been a staple in Boise, serving freshly baked bread and homemade soups and sandwiches. Now, after seven years at the helm, owners Heather and Zane Colby are planning to sell the bakery, but they are assuring customers that the beloved bakery isn't closing its doors. Colby has been the custodian of a legacy that dates back to 1982, making their location the second oldest in the Great Harvest franchise, which boasts over 200 locations. As they prepare to move on to other endeavors, including beekeeping, they are seeking someone to continue the bakery's tradition. The transition is expected to be smooth, thanks to a dedicated team, including a head baker, who have been with the bakery for 16 years. While the new owner may put their personal touch on the bakery, it will remain part of the Great Harvest family. The Colbys are yet to find a buyer, so the timeline for the transition remains uncertain. However, they are committed to ensuring that the bakery continues to serve the Boise community as it has for the past 39 years. So moving on from bakeries to brewing battles, we have the battle between St. Luke's and Ammon Bundy. This comes from the East Idaho News by Sally Krutzig of Idaho Statesman. In a significant turn of events, St. Luke's health system has emerged victorious in its legal battles against activist Ammon Bundy. The health system, which earlier this year won a defamation case against Bundy and his associate Diego Rodriguez, has now taken ownership of Bundy's Emmett property and succeeded in getting Bundy's websites removed from the Internet. The defamation case saw an Ada County jury ordering Bundy, Rodriguez, and their entities to pay $52.5 million in damages for defaming St. Luke's and some of its employees. Since then, St. Luke's has been pushing hard to collect the money and get Bundy and Rodriguez to remove false, defamatory online statements about the health system and its staff. St. Luke's made significant strides this week. When Bundy refused to start making damage payments, St. Luke's went after his assets. They asked 3rd District Judge Brent Whiting to undo the sale of Bundy's home, alleging that he sold it illegally last year to put an asset beyond a creditor's reach, a fraudulent conveyance under the law. Bundy's associate, Aaron Welling, purchased the property, including all the furniture and appliance through his corporation, White Barn Enterprises, for $250,000 last December. However, a Boise real estate agency stated in court filings that the house and property were worth at least $1 million. In a twist, Bundy's current whereabouts are unclear. His wife, Lisa Bundy, made statements on social media last month suggesting that her family was moving. St. Luke's also succeeded in getting defamatory statements removed online, and entire websites run by the defendants were stricken from the Internet. Web hosting services removed sites run by the Bundy-founded People's Rights Network, Freedom Man Press, run by Rodriguez, and Bundy's campaign website. And keeping with the theme of the medical industry, now St. Luke's might be getting their pound of flesh, but Portner Farm Medical Center definitely is uh, getting taken out right now. Ransomware attack hits Portnifer Medical Center and its parent company. This comes to the East Idaho News by Logan Ramsey. Portnifer Medical Center in Pocatello, Idaho is currently dealing with the aftermath of a cyber attack that affected its parent company, Ardent Health Services. The ransomware attack has impacted all 30 of Ardent's hospitals 
hospitals across the country, forcing Portnifer Medical Center to operate with its systems offline. Ardent Health Services discovered the attack on November 23rd and immediately took its network offline to protect patients and hospital information. The company is working with federal law enforcement agencies, including the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency to investigate the extent of the data impacted in the incident. This cyber attack is the latest of a series of similar incidences targeting healthcare providers and other organizations in eastern Idaho. As we've talked about over the last couple of months, Mountain View Hospital in Idaho Falls, Madison Health in Rexburg, and the Idaho National Laboratory as of recently have also experienced cyber attacks that have disrupted their operations and in some cases leaked sensitive information. As of now, there is no estimate for when the cyber attack on Ardent Health Services will be resolved. In the meantime, Portnifer Medical Center is working to maintain the quality of care for its patients despite the challenges posed by the attack. Now, coming back over to the Treasure Valley, we have Napa City Council seat open for applicants. This comes by KTVB7 by staff. The city of Napa is seeking a resident of District 3 to fill a soon-to-be vacant council seat. The vacancy is due to a 2020 bill requiring cities with a population of over 100,000 to redistrict, which led to the previous city council member, Natalie Jangela, running for and winning the election in District 2. The city has open applications for District 3 council seat and the appointed resident will serve until the end of 2025. The interested resident must send a resume and a letter outlining their qualifications to the mayor's office. The mayor and the city council will interview the applicants who make it to the final selection. Mayor Debbie Kling encouraged applicants who have been actively engaged in the community and have previously participated in the local boards, commissions, or nonprofits to apply. Residents can visit the city's website to find out which district they live in and for further information about District 3 seat and call the mayor's office. So moving from council seats to boat seats, Tamarack Resort to build a new marina. This comes from KTVB7 by staff. Tamarack Resort in Idaho has officially signed a 20-year lease with the Idaho Parks and Recreation Department for the construction of the marina at Tamarack Resort. The marina, whose construction is pending an environmental analysis from the Bureau of Reclamation, will feature 200 boat slips, on-water fuel access, boat mooring facilities, and a rental and retail facility. It will also offer expanded parking for guests and a rental fleet of motorized and non-motorized watercraft. Construction is set to begin as soon as the Bureau of Reclamation completes their environmental analysis, which is anticipated to be in early 2024. The resort aims to complete the project by summer of 2024, with the marina opening on Memorial Day. At the time of the initial opening, the resort will have 70 boat slips available, along with the other facilities. The marina will be public, with seasonal slips available from Memorial Day to October 1st every year. And speaking of motorized things and coming back to the valley and the wonderful weather we're having, a little bit of a less rosy one, fog-induced 30-vehicle collision on I-86 in eastern Idaho. This comes by KTVB7 by Associated Press. A thick layer of fog is believed to be the cause of a 30-vehicle collision on eastbound Interstate 86 near Pocatello. The incident occurred near the Pocatello Regional Airport, where the fog caused visibility to decrease significantly in a short amount of time. 
time. The sudden slowdown of vehicles led to a chain reaction, resulting in a multi-vehicle collision. One person with minor injuries was taken to the hospital, while several others were transported by personal vehicles. Aftermath of the collision blocked traffic on I-86 between exit 56 and 59 for seven hours, allowing emergency responders and tow trucks to assist those involved and clear the scene. Idaho State Police were investigating the collision and have determined that a heavy rolling bank of fog contributed to the wreck. The investigation is still ongoing, though, and it is unknown if anyone will be charged or receive citations. In light of the incident, police are warning drivers to practice caution, especially in poor weather. Boise State Police Lieutenant Mike Winans and Justin Smith, spokesperson for the Idaho Transportation Department, emphasized the importance of gradually slowing down when encountering fog and maintaining a safe following distance. All that said, thank you for listening to the entire podcast. I sincerely hope you found it enjoyable and valuable. If you missed any important points or provided incorrect information, please feel free to reach out to us via email at localyokelidaho2022 at gmail.com or on Twitter by tweeting us at localyokelidaho. With the small team we have here, we're not able to cover everything, but we do our best to cover the most interesting and important stories. Thank you for your continued support and assistance. That's all for now, and I wish you a fantastic rest of your week. Godspeed.